welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Telstar by the Tornadoes. That's one of the tracks that Will Sargent of Echo and the Bunnyman mentions in his new memoir, Bunnyman. And I've got the huge pleasure to welcome Will today. Welcome, Will. Yeah, hi. How are you? All right? Yeah, yeah. Such a fantastic book of yours, which depicts growing up in the very formative stages of Echo and the Bunnyman. And I love the way that you've weaved music in throughout the chapters and throughout the book. So like in Kits Chapter 3, you've got Telstar there. Yeah, that organic sound. You know, I think it was called a Clavio line, and I got one later on in the right. 80s. And then it got, it got trashed when, when I moved flat. I was really pissed off. It was a dead <laughs> unusual little weird key, monophonic keyboard. From the early 60s onwards, the council house in, is it Melling, which is Lancashire, Merseyside? That was Lancashire then. Right. It became Merseyside in this sort of, uh, sometime in the 70s, I think, and they, they changed the boundaries. I think it was to try and manipulate the voting things, something like that, you know, like the way there was messing around things. Yeah, so it became Merseyside then, but it was Lancashire when I was growing up. It was always Lancashire. Liverpool was Lancashire, Manchester was Lancashire, you know. Yeah. Is it people from Liverpool cold, people from Melling? Was it Woollybacks? They call anybody that lives in anywhere near the country a Woollybacks. Right. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's like a slag off, water off a Woollybacks back. <laughs> You've got the picture of like, you know, Saturday morning bacon and egg fry up and a fridge that runs on gas and the way that your dad did some interesting DIY in the, in the front room there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where his head was coming from there, but. And like at the time, you just accepted it. It was like, yeah, why not make the room smaller? <laughs> it's like, why? You know, it's crazy. Other people in the streets had the same little alcoves and they put shelves there, you know, and put like a little lamp or a few knickknacks or whatever, you know. He just boarded it all up. It's just, I don't quite understand why. There was nobody buried behind it or anything, you know. There was nowhere uh, skeletons. Is it difficult recalling back all those times because you, you, you depict it in such, um, you know, vivid imagery? Did you have to ask uh, friends, relations, or was it all from memory? Uh, I asked my sister about a couple of things, but, um, well, my brother more than my sister, actually, but nothing major. Like, like they, they got, they, my brother and my sister left when I was young. Right. You know, 19, or 1970. So I was about 12 or something. And then I never saw them again for years, you know. So um, they weren't there. Yeah. It's kind of like when my mum left, everything calmed down a bit and it became a bit more, I wouldn't say normal, but not as much aggro. Yeah. But there was nobody to have aggro with, you know, it was only me. There's a great bit about you having ice skating lessons in school, Resurrection Shuffle, Ashton Gardner and Dyke sort of playing. And I've heard it, yeah. I've heard it afterwards and that, that song really hits you. Yeah, there's a few that, that were out round about then that were like beyond the normal pop. You know, there was like Radar Love by uh, Golden Earring, you know, which is a really good one. Atomic Rooster, Tomorrow Night, you know, I A Knocking, Dave Edmonds. That was a great sounding record, like, you know, a great jukebox record. Yeah, so, and, and like, you know, things like that stick in your head, you know, skating around. We didn't have lessons. You said we had lessons. Oh, right. Just, like, here's some skates. Off you go. We're all like, you know, wobbling all over the place. But that you soon sort of get the hang of it. Next thing, you know, everyone's going the same direction. You get smart artists that could go backwards and all that, you know, future sort of, you know, you know, ice skating 
people, you know. Mm. Well, most most of us were just trundling around, like, you know, going around in a circle with, you know, T-Rex and Ashton Gardner and Dyke and uh, Fit It in the Sky. That was, a, you know, Norman Greenbaum. That's a, a great song, you know, a great sound in record. Like when records sounded great, you know, they had amazing guitar sounds and I just love that, that, that period, you know. And you were watching Top of the Pops. Yeah, but a lot of that, like, we kind of didn't like because we were like supposedly you know hippies but you know only a kid so they were called trogs where we lived you know hippies there was sort of called trogs there was a lad in our school called trog actually he, he sort of he, he was from wigan and he joined the school later and he had long hair and everything you know and he was like his name was trog you know <laughs> but me mate paul simpson remembers him you know from uh, the wild swans he was like in our school as well. The late sixties, you describe a lot of the sort of rock acts that you're getting into. You went to Nems and got Voodoo Child, Jimi Hendrix. So you're really getting into rock in that late sixties, early seventies period. Yeah, well, it just sort of I just became aware of it, and I, I loved the sort of the war guitar on it and the way it was like dead trippy. And it was also they, they put it out just after he died, not long after he died. So they had it like really cheap. It was like half the price of the other singles. So that might have had. Uh, you know, a reason as well. I've got it here, actually. I want to see it. All right. Well, I did have it. You've still got some of those original records. You've got all the. Yeah. I've got your first album as well, the Rolling Stones here. <laughs> you know, Gimme Shelter, it was. I'm a bit of a hoarder.
when did you hear the uh, the Doors for the first time? Because I've, I've heard they're a bit of an influence on you as well. Yeah, I love the Doors. The Doors were um, the first time I heard them was at my brother's house in in uh, Pinner, and he had a flat in Pinner. It was like have you seen the film with Neil and yeah. I? Well, it's like that. <laughs> that's, that's the nearest. Uh, uh, you know, he's a bit older than me, and he had a, he was like a, a hippie as well. And all his mates were like hippies, and, that, and they had this flat in Pinner, and he had Strange Days. You know, the album Strange Days. Yeah. And we played that. I I just fell in love with them straight away. Like I'd never heard of them. You know, I'd never heard anything by them. To me, they were like some band from the past. But it, this was about 1971 or something. So it's kind of. They went pat, you know. It's like if you think about bands now, like bloody hell, the Aussie Monkeys have probably been going 10 years, haven't they? 20. I mean, they still seem like a new band, you know. Yeah. But I, as a kid, I thought they were from years ago. After that, I started, like, you know, with me, me paper round and my pocket money or whatever I could get, you know. I started saving up and bought all the Doors records. And a lot of the time, you had to send off for things then. There was like the record shops were pretty mainstream. There was a couple in Liverpool, Virgin and uh, Probe Records, yeah. and one called Penny Lane Records. But if you wanted uh, anything unusual, you had to send off the back of the enemy and the sounds and all that. We were always sending off for records, and it's great when the postman came. Hmm. It's not like now everyone's used to getting 10 parcels a day from Amazon or whatever, but then it was like a big thrill, you know. <laughs> it's great. How did you get in contact with Ray Manzanek then? Because you did work with him in the Bunnyman, didn't you? Well, what happened was they wanted us to do People Are Strange for a film called Lost Boys. The director, the bloke called Joel Schumacher, he sort of, you know, sent a message to our office or whatever saying, we want you to do People Are Strange and Ray Manzarek is going to produce it. Initially, and I just went, yeah, definitely, I'd bam up for that. Mac wasn't that keen at first. But then Joel Schumacher phoned him up and had a chat with him and uh, talked him round, you know. Then we did it and Ray came over to Liverpool and produced it, played, showed me how to play the guitar a bit. Like, I'm, you know, it's, a, it's not great the way I play it. It's not as, near as good as Robbie Krieger. Yeah, so, you know, he came, he played, and, he, and we sort of got friends with him and then he played on a couple of our tracks as well. He played on uh, Bedbugs and Ballyhoo. We didn't have a, a Vox Continental organ. Yeah, We had an emulator, which did the sound of a Vox Continental organ, you know. Emulators were a new thing then. There was like a sampling keyboard. I think they were about 8,000 quid. We were the first band to have one in the country. Yeah, like Blue Monday and all that's done on an emulator. Mm. The second band to have one, you know, New Order. They obviously got into it a lot more than we did. We just used it to do string sounds and the odd piano sound, that sort of thing. Yeah, and he played it on, on this emulator, the organ bits.
As a guitarist in the book, you describe how Tom Verlaine and Richard Lloyd were an influence, such incredible, unique guitarists. Yeah, the, it's the interplay, you see, between the two of them. They swap. One will be doing like the rhythmic thing and the other one weaving in over the top. And then a bit later on, it'll they'll swap around and the other one, you know, and they're both equally as interesting as each other. Mm. And, you know, uh, dead long solos, you think it would be like some sort of progressive rock kind of crap, but it's it's not. It's more like classical music, I think. Mm. I assume it was Marky Moon then that you fell in love with. Yeah, yeah. And um, when we first started going over to America, there's a DJ over there. He's kind of like LA's version of John Peel. His name's um, Rodney Bingenheimer. Oh, yeah. And uh, he gave me Little Johnny Jewel on Orc. The seven is only 500. And he gave me one. I've still got it here somewhere. Probably in my tees. And I've got a cupboard here full of singles. And uh, they're all labelled, you know. But uh, that was a special thing to have because, you know, I'm like a record collector, like a lot of people, you know. So I love records, collecting them as much as making them, you know.
trying to tell a vision well, Some thought this was sad And others thought it mad They just scratching the surface JJ could do the floor kiss Or was he on display? No, no, not today that guy ever said He said I want my little wing head Maybe half asleep at night Over his head sensation of flight And he wake up dreaming Dreaming And he run down to the airport With rush and roar down behind the fence with a chest full of lights
But if you see him looking lost You ain't gotta come on so boss Oh, you know that he's paid You know that he's paid the price All you gotta do for that guy Is wink your eye And when you started going to Eric's, were you playing guitar then? Not when the time? I started going. It was about a year later. First off, I swapped a pair of plastic pants. That I had like shiny black plastic trousers, you know, kind of like bondage kind of things. With me mate Paul Simpson for a, a K guitar. And uh, I never really, I didn't quite understand how it worked. I never knew how to tune it and it was terrible. And then um, a guy had a job by then, so... Mm. I had like enough money to buy a, a proper guitar on weekly payments, so I bought a Telecaster. And I bought a Telecaster really because I really liked Wilco Johnson from Dr. Feelgood. That's why I like I like the shape of them. I preferred the shape of them to a Stratocaster. You know, they were a bit more brutal looking. And when you read about the very famous musicians and characters in Eric's now, just for that short period, mm. it just seems incredible, the talent around at the time. Was it clear the distinct, you know, strong personalities that were around in that scene, or was it just like any other club? No, I think it was it was the club itself. It was like, we used to go the, we used to go anyway, no matter who was on. Even we hated the bands. Like, we went to see the police. <laughs> I mean, and uh, we didn't like them. But, but we went anyway because it was something to do and see your friends, you know. And it was like a, a sort of witch's cauldron bubbling away and all these, like, spells were coming out, you know. Frankie Goes to Hollywood, you know, Pete Burns, you know, Pete Wiley, Teardrop Explodes, you know, us, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, Pink Military, you know, uh, Jane Casey's plot. And mm. It was just a magical place, really. Everybody was trying to outdo each other. Everyone was trying. There was a lot of rivalry and a lot of sort of, yeah, there was friendship, but there was also like jealousy, a lot of jealousy. You know, if you got in the paper, it was like some of the others were not happy about it. You know, they'd like slag it off type of thing behind your back. Was it that sort of thing that, that drove you on to start creating your own music then? Well, I always wanted to create our own music because I didn't want to uh, learn anybody else's songs. And it just seemed to be the interesting thing is to create something new. Yeah, and it was, it was just like the, the sort of, at the beginning, it was just the three of us. And we all had our own characteristics. And nobody was telling the other people what to do. So we might not have been doing the absolute, absolute correct thing, but you know, collectively, it made an interesting sound. Like on Villiers Terrace, I play E minor, because I liked E minor, because it was a bit more gloomy. I was a bit of a gloom merchant. And Mac wanted it to be E major. So he's playing E major and I'm playing E minor and it sort of makes this weird, you don't know what it is, it's somewhere in between. Like people are trying to work out how they do that. And it's like, it's it's incorrect really, but it added to the sort of sound somehow. I don't really know. I don't know the ins and outs of all the musical theory, but we did that a lot. You know, I'd be playing E minor and Mac wanted it to be major. (laughs) So we both do the same, you know, because a lot of the time it was both of us doing chords at the same time, you know. That was one of the tracks that you also did on on your first Peel session, wasn't it? Yeah. That must have been a bit of a big moment with John Peel. Well, we love John Peel anyway, because we used to listen to John Peel all the time. You know, everybody did. All of Eric's did. And you'd, you'd talk about it, you know, did you wear the slits? 
session or did you hear the gang of four or the fall you know and we'd record it uh, you know every time it was on every night it was on we'd record it and then play it back in the van or Les's car or whatever yeah it was to get his sort of seal of approval was a massive deal for me anyway I remember like he, he said that was the mighty echo on the bunny man <laughs> and we got we, we got that was after like our, playing our first single and we got a stamp made the next day with the mighty echo on the bunny man on there and like we were stamping everything like Bill Drummond got it made and we were like stamping all you know all the correspondence and everything you know I wish I still had that stamp I don't know whether Bill's got it
you even hear your debut single the pictures on my wall the original version it's still got a real energy to it yeah it's an unusual sound isn't it it's got um that was um i bought a uh a fender 12 stuck on it over here yeah show you what <laughs> wow yeah <laughs> so i bought that uh, at um on the you know on hp as well yeah i i bought that because bowie played a 12 string Right. You know, I sort of didn't really know much about guitars, to tell you the truth. I just thought it was mainly like getting influenced like that. Oh, Bowie's got one of them. I'll get one of them. Or Wilco Johnson's got a Telecaster. I'll get a Telecaster, you know, that sort of thing. So I didn't really know what I was letting myself in for, but playing 12 strings is really difficult, especially when you're only just learning, you know. I think you say in the book that um, there's a little bit of influence of uh, the passenger on pictures um, on my wall as well. Yeah, it's that sort of circular kind of like few chords going round and round and round, you know. If it was in tune, I'd play it, yeah, but it's, it'll turn me off. Yeah, yeah. Two hours of tuning up.
on the debut Echo and the Bunnyman album, you also worked with another figure who must have been incredibly young at that time, Ian Brody. What was it like working with him in that early period as well? Yeah, it was great. Like, you know, Ian's a really nice fella. Like, you know, he's brilliant. And he's he knows his way around a, a pop tune. Yeah. You know, he knows his way around the arrangements of a song a lot better than we did. He helped with arranging certain things, you know. And he knew a lot of studio techniques that we didn't know, you know, because we're just kids, you know, we didn't know nothing. All of a sudden we're in a studio and he'd already done an album with, uh, I think he'd done some recording with Big in Japan. And then he did the other band called The Original Mirrors with the singer from Deaf School. And so he'd been in the studio a lot more than us. So he, he knew a lot more things, what, what you know, compressors did or noise gates and all this sort of stuff. We didn't know what, what any of it was. He did some interesting things with the, on on rescue. He, um, I recorded the guitar, the, like a sort of motif on the guitar, and then he slowed the tape down. I did it again, like double tracked it, and because the one of the, you know one of the versions we were slowed down a bit, it kind of added like a kind of like I'm talking like a minute amount, not like you know not a BPM slow down, like a, mm. a hundredth of a BPM slow down or something like that, and it, it did like this weird kind of. Uh, chorusy effect but it was a lot more it really popped out a lot more than you know just putting a pedal on so he, he knew a lot of techniques and things he only produced two songs on the first album right he did ride and he did rescue i think i'm, I'm right saying i think i did all the guitars on both of them tracks mike might have done something on rescue but the rest of the album was done sort of with bill drummond and dave balfe and they called themselves the Chameleons. It wasn't the band, the Chameleons. No. It came a bit later, I think. But we had this engineer as well called Hugh Jones, who was brilliant. I mean, he, he can, he was like, you know, introducing interesting sorts of instruments, like he knew about a lot of stuff. And we had um, more on Heaven Up Here, really. But we had uh, a thing called a slit drum, which I'd never heard of. And Pete was playing that with these little sticks with rubber balls on the end. It was like a a big wooden box with like bits cut out and where you played it made different sounds. And he got um, some bloke in to play recorder. Like, you know, what sort of rock record has a recorder <laughs> on it, you know? Uh, but it was great because th- this, this bloke, his name somebody, Leslie, he could bend the notes, you know? Mm. So on the he bent the notes and it was dead kind of uh, ethereal and evocative of some sort of spookiness. It's great.
it's worth mentioning Pete's contribution to the band, in, especially in that those first four albums, which are just brilliant. And when you look at the, the drum sound for Killing Moon as well, which is a lot softer, not like the Keith Moon theatrics, it's very subtle. Well, he used brushes. He was getting into brushes at the time. I think we did a version with drums. Right. And I think Mac thought it was a bit too normal, if I remember rightly. We went in and did the people's getting into this brushes thing because we were all into, uh, you know, that song uh, Take Five by Dave Brubeck. Yeah. But it's amazing drum solo in the middle. We were like really into that. We used to play it in the van and that. And it goes on for ages, like a drum solo. You know, you, you'd never think, wow, I want to hear a drum solo. But this this bloke's brilliant in, in that Dave Brubeck band. So we were, we were into that a bit. And then he went in and he just replaced the drums with the brushes. I think he might have done a click or something, you know, on one of the tracks, like a shaker or something like that, you know, all the way through. So we had someone to play to because there's no turning back. We only had 24 tracks. So when he was redoing the drums, we had to rub off the original drums. Yeah. It was a bit like kind of go for it or live or die by it type of thing, you know. I remember us doing that. But I think it was Mac that said he didn't didn't like the drums. Mm-hmm. He wanted it a bit different. And it worked. Brilliant. Great idea.
It was that broader palette that stood you apart to many of the bands in, in that period. And it was still a commercial sound at the time, but actually there are elements that harked back or took little bits from the 60s, a bit like The Cutter has got bits of that Matthew and Son feel on it. Yeah, this is this is one of these things where me and Brody don't, don't agree, but <laughs> he reckoned he said it. But I remember like we, we loved Matthew and Son, me and Ian. I had a flat with him then. I had a, I shared a flat with Ian and we used to play records all the time. And I remember him. We played Matthew and Son, and there's a bit where it sort of drops down at the end, and it's like he says Matthew and Son three times. He goes Matthew and Son, Matthew and Son, and then the third one has got a big reverb on it, just the one, and it's got this big reverb on it, and it's like, and then the next one's not, it's like dry, and we used to spot things like that. And Brody was brilliant at all the production things, so he spotted that, and we just loved that song. And when we were uh, when we had this bloke Shankar playing the vi- violin. 
he had this weird violin with two necks, ten strings, dead, dead odd. He'd been playing since he was three. <laughs> he, he was unbelievable, unbelievable bloke. Like Brody says, he said, "Can you play something like Matthew and some?" But I thought it was me that said it. But we might, you know, who knows? But we we're both into that track at the time, and it is a bit like Matthew. And so it's not the same, but it's no. It's like you know, it's like a sort of weird psychedelic, swirly version of the you know, of the the chorus of Matthew and Son. Yeah, so you know, you get like little ideas like that, and someone will put it into practice. You know, remember I did the uh, those thingies, isn't there? Isn't there um, tubular bells on it? That might be on Seven Seas. Seems to remember doing tubular mm. bells on one of them. I think Pete did some tubular bells on one, but that was always a good thing. You know. We were always like trying to lash on like things like two tubular bells or timpanies or harpsichord, that sort of stuff. Yeah, unu- unusual instruments was fascinated us, really. Studios that you worked in at the time, you hear stories about the Beatles picking up instruments or going into the library and get. Was it a similar story for you guys? Are we having to sort of hire things in? No, a lot of studios have got odd instruments. When we, when we did Ocean Rain, they had loads of like weird keyboards. They had a piano and all the, uh, you know, the, the things that hit the strings. I don't know what they're called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, like, the, like felt. All of them. Someone had put a drawing pin in all of them. So they all sort of sounded dead clacky, you know, kind of like ding, ding, ding. So we used that on some things. And they had a, they had a, a vibraphone and a marimba. So they, often, they, had, they had a Celeste in the middle of, I don't know if it's Yo-Yo Man or Nocturnal Me. We went in and Pete did this little piano thing. And we all went in. We had, we didn't have hardly any tracks left, so we all went in and we each picked an instrument. And Pete was doing this little piano thing. It was on the Celeste, I think. And we were just like making noises in the background. And like, remember Les was going up and down the marimba uh, like this with the you know the beat. And it's all like this weird trippiness going on, you know, things like that. You know, we still love doing stuff like that. I loved going into the studio at the time, you know. I like learning all these techniques and mm. reversing the tape and reverse reverb. Yeah, well, on um, uh, Happy Death Men, I do a, a big scream. Listen to it. <laughs> There's a big scream, and it's me, like, screaming. I was so uh, – it's a high-pressure situation in the studio, so I was getting a bit pissed off with, like, the way it was going and wasn't really going my way kind of thing, some of it. He put a mic down the end of a corridor, and I – went down the other end and screamed like as loud as I could. And I lost my voice because I screamed so loud. And it's just in the mix. You know, probably, if you listen to it again, you might hear it. It's in Happy Death, man. And like on uh, Over the Wall, there's a bit in a drop-down bit in Over the Wall and Les does a, a, a little poem. You can hear him talking in the background. It's about a, <laughs> a little dwarf or something in his room or something or that. <laughs> Don't know what it, I've never quite got to the bottom of it, but you know, doing things like that was made it like interesting to me. You know, it was, it was more more than just doing a rock record. You know, we were trying to be a bit more experimental and a bit more trippy, you know, and trying to send your mind somewhere else, you know.
it feels like in that early period you were constantly moving and experimenting and each album had a, a slightly different feel to it and it would build on the next you were really building yeah we didn't want to uh, we didn't want to repeat ourselves that's for sure we were always like looking for new uh, instruments and new sort of not so much styles because we weren't that competent enough to go well let's do it hmm. um, but we'd sort of I don't know we'd just venture off down different lanes that presented themselves to us somehow you know we didn't we didn't kind of um, like we knew we didn't want to do Crocodiles every album hmm. we wanted to develop it and they are all different than first four definitely different and even the first five really yeah we always had to battle at the record company because they were always trying to get us to do like a hit record, mm. you know, and a lot of our stuff, even though some of them were sort of minor hits, if you like, they weren't commercial as the way that they saw it, you know. So we were always arguing with them. They'd come down the recording and they'd be like, you know, they didn't like it. They didn't like back our love, remember that? Really? Yeah. I mean, when you hear that now, what kind of record label doesn't hear back of love and think that that is a great record because at the time people weren't making records like that they were doing other you know right. it was kind of more poppy somehow yeah i mean when you think of the charts at the time other than say the, the smiths and a few other groups there weren't that many sort of guitar bands in top 10 in that way no maybe you too yeah was yeah i can't think of many really but like we were a guitar band but we would take it yeah you know to different extremes and then you know, I used to like doing like a lot of effects and stuff like that, but there were certain effects I didn't like. I didn't like flanging. I didn't really like chorus. You know, me it seemed to make it sound too sort of sat in a period. Mm. Yeah, because loads of the bands had chorus all over the guitars. Like I'd say on that version of Rescue, it had a sort of chorusy feel, but it wasn't a chorus pedal, so it was kind of like a bit more organic and real to me. You know, I could I could deal with that. If it had just been a chorus pedal, I just think oh, a bit of shit that. We were we were trying to do timeless music. I think that's what our vibe was, really. Yeah, we wanted things to last and not be set in like a particular sound. Like we haven't really got that horrible eighties drum sound, you know. The Phil Collins gated reverb. Yeah, all that and <laughs> no, we haven't got all that stuff. It's more real. You didn't do a disco remix. Uh, we did do a disco remix. We did uh, one of uh, Never Stop. Yeah. Yeah, Never Stop Discotheque. <laughs> <laughs> but it was um, it was just basically, it was just extended. They just kept right. yeah. the edit sections and then chop them in. Yeah, we've got to remember then you had to, t- to do an edit. It wasn't just like on a computer where you could just you know, move a section, chop it and move it. You had to do it with tape. You had to cut it with a razor blade. A bit like with the Beatles when they were... Yeah, we did all that. Well, I didn't do it. The engineers did it, you know. And, like, we do stuff like we turn the tape over to do, say, a reverse guitar. Like, I loved reverse guitars because it was trippy, you know. Mm. And what they'd do is they'd find the section, so they'd have it that way, and they'd find the section. Yeah, they have these things, white you know, China graph pencils, and you could draw on the, ta- on the back of the tape. So they'd draw a mark on the tape and a line and then turn it over. And then when I saw that mark, I knew that's when I was meant to be doing the reverse guitar. So, and you do it like a few times and you just find a good one. It didn't always work. And, but now with a computer, you can do it loads and loads and you just pick all the good bits and shift them around. You couldn't do any of that shifting. Well, you could have done mm. if you'd have bounced it onto another tape and then dropped it in again, but it's a total ball like that. 
But yeah, you know, are there certain things on a computer that you can't do? You know, it's difficult to do um, reverse reverb, mm. which is what we did on on Killing Moon in the choruses. I did an auto harp, like it's like a big, oh yeah, it's like a harp, and you press the keys and splang, you know. So I was doing these like the chords on the chorus, and then we turned the tape over and put reverb on it, so there was something going like this, and then we turned it back. And the reverb was at the front of the sound rather than the back of the sound. You know what I mean? So it was like the echo mm. was at the front. Yeah. In it. So it swelled into the cut. So it was like, zing, zing. If you have a listen, you'll, you'll probably you'll be able to notice that. Like all them little things add to the flavor and made us a little bit more unusual. I think Roxy Music and people like that did a lot of these things, you know, obviously oh, yeah. the Brian Eno and everything. Because they've got one called... Um, there's one where it's uh, it all sweeps in like a big phasery kind of reverse reverb thing. Hmm. Darkness falls. To... It's a later one. It's on something like Stranded or Country. Oh, yeah. One of them. We sort of heard these sounds, but we didn't know how to execute them. And it was people like uh, Hugh Jones, who was our engineer. He knew how to execute these techniques. You know. I grew. 
So in terms of looking forward, is it a bit of a mix of live dates, your own sort of solo musical projects and, and maybe thinking of a, a follow-up book? Is, is it those three things? Yeah, like I'm doing, a, I'm going to do, a, definitely doing another book because it's going to go into like crocodiles and going away for yeah. the first time. Like I'd never been anywhere except real <laughs> three days <laughs> until like the Bunny Man and then like started travelling. You know, I'd been around the world both ways by the time I was 23. Wow. And uh that was nuts, you know. All that, all that traveling was one of the best things about being in a, a band, going to places yeah. and meeting loads of people. Yeah, so yeah, it's going to go. And then we're doing some gigs in starting in February. And if this COVID thing settles down yeah. somehow, God knows, I don't know what, how it's going to pan out. Mm. Uh, you never know what's around the corner nowadays. Mm. So hopefully, get back to some sort of normality and get back to going on tour and going to America and that. And we should have been in America a couple of times. Yeah. The other thing is I'm doing a friend of mine, you know, Adam Peters that did the strings on Ocean Rain. Yeah. The conductor and arranger and everything. He does film music now in America, and I'm um, helping him with some film music for a film called, it's a Apple, you know, the Apple Films. Mm. It's called Shantaram. It's about some bloke that's escaped from prison, mm. and he's in Bombay. And it's re- it's a really great, story like he's like involved in all kinds of dodgy stuff it's really descriptive of what bombay mumbai whatever you want to call it was like then you know horrendous poverty and somebody like he's from new zealand someone like him trying to think well you can't do that let's try and help these people and you can't help them Mm. it's brilliantly written it's like it's kind of um the way they accept it the way they live and all that stuff and there's a bit in it where um, he's getting pulled along with an ox cart and uh, the bloke's hitting the ox on the arse with a stick with a nail in it to keep it moving, you know. And he's like, stop hitting the bleeding ox with the nail, you know. And they just laugh at him like it's just their way. It's the way it is, you know, like us lot coming over there and telling them what to do, you know, it's not going to work. It seems you've managed to strike a great balance of, of different projects now, I'd like to be a lot more involved in the Bunny Men records now. Yeah. I'm not really. It's more Ian's, he's kind of a bit more leading in that. Yeah. So um, that upsets me a bit. That's why I do a lot of these other things because I've got to have a creative outlet. Yeah. And my creative outlet there has been kind of stamped on. Yeah. So I like, um, you know, I do art. I do started doing the writing. I do my own little solo projects. I know they're never going to be a hit record or anything. I don't do them for that. It's not that's not why I'm doing them. <laughs> I, I do them because I get a satisfaction from creation. That's all. Yeah. That's why I do them. And like I've done one, I've done a new glide record and it's all finished. And it's been finished for about five years. And I can't be bothered putting it out. Just because I enjoy the writing side of it and recording. But the other side of where I've got it, like, um, he'll get it pressed because I'm my own record label as well, you know, and all that. Yeah. It doesn't take a lot to do, but it's a bit of a drag. Yeah, there's a lot going on. But, you know, I have been thinking about doing some solo gigs, you know, kind of like taking a lot of my glide stuff and yeah. maybe getting some sort of little tabletop set up. 
you know, Gary, keep it small, simple, ambient, and doing like some sort of uh, you know, small little intimate kind of gig. There's a bloke around the corner. He's got a farm shop. He's got this uh, big octagonal, it's a baboon house. He got somebody to build him this uh, baboon house <laughs> around the back. He hasn't got any baboons. He's, <laughs> and he's, he's cladded it all out and made it like dead nice. It's like he's got a dead nice floor on it. It's like a yoga studio now. It's like an organic farm shop around the corner. And the dead sound people, I was sort of hankering to think I could do something in there and like maybe do like a, an ambient gig, but using acoustic instruments somehow. Been trying to formulate it in my head how I could do it. Mm. You know, just everyone just sat around. It's not like a rave <laughs> or nothing, you know, just kind of chilled out. Yeah, well, it's clear that your Twitter account was only set up relatively recently and the, the rush of people to follow you. Definitely interesting in you and your music and, you know, the reception for your new book has, has been amazing. So why not? Yeah, well, the Twitter thing, it's what you put into it is what you get out of it. You know, so if you just do a, the odd thing every now and then, People would stop looking and, you know, you've got to keep going on it. Mm. I enjoy doing it because I like getting the attention for a change. It's been nice, you know, and uh, everybody's pretty positive. You know, I've only had a few snotty comments, but nothing more major. Mm. Generally just have a laugh, you know, take the piss out of them or whatever, and that's that. It's like another creative outlet. I'm thinking of things to do. Keep them interested, you know, and think, oh, what Will's up to, you know. It's not just a press release. It's actually a bit of you. Oh, it's totally me, yeah. And I've always liked that sort of cottage industry vibe, like, you know, from punk rock, you know, from from when, uh, you know, indie labels, you know, the big labels shot themselves when all the indie labels started mm. up, you know, and they were, like, desperate to get a piece of that action. You know, like our label was Warner Brothers, really, but they created this fake label called Corova. Yeah. And so it was like some sort of indie thing. Well, it wasn't really, it's just Warners. They did all, you know, everything was going through them. In America, we were on Sire which was kind of a bit cooler, but they still just went through Warner Brothers and were involved with, but it was Seymour Stein, you know, Stanley had done the, mm. the talking ads and the Ramones and later on Madonna and that. So in terms of Sire and Seymour Stein, he, he was aware of you and I think might have got you signed before at the, in the really, really early days, wasn't it? He came to see it. We, we did a gig at the YMCA in London. It's on uh, Tottenham Court Road or just off it. It was in a basement and it was like a sort of, Indoor festival. There was always orchestral maneuvers, tear up explodes, joy division. I don't know where Girotti Column and certain ratio were on. They might have been. Who else was on? Essential Logic, I think, which was Laura Logic's band. Who she used to be the sax player in um, X-ray Specs, Polystyrene. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, we're doing this gig with Joy Division, and Seymour Stein turns up with this bloke called Paul McNally, who was something to do with the publishing at Warner's. I know we'd sort of met him or something. And he brought Seymour to see us and he liked us, you know, simple as that. And he, he said, if you get a drummer, we'll sign you. He said that the, or he did the single and he said, like I did like a little organ thing. It was a, I think called a Phil Corder. It's like a funny little Phillips mm. organ, tiny little thing. And I did these three notes in the in the chorus of, uh, it wasn't the chorus, it was like a, another bit of, uh, I've pictures on my wall and he liked the sound. He said it reminded him of Runaway by uh, Del Shannon. Because <laughs> he was that old school, you know, like Seymour's like mm. 80 odd or whatever. Now. Yeah. Going back to the book, yeah. the recollection and detail and stories, it is really a, a piece of social history and musical history. And I think that that's what 
maps it out as a bit different to some of the more usual books by musicians, really. So, well, like I did this and I did the other, aren't I great? Yeah, nonsense. Like a lot of being in a band is waiting around, and yeah, wasn't it like Charlie Watts said? We've we've been we've known about for twenty five years, and two years of that was playing, and the rest was waiting around or something. That's what it's like, but. If you're in a foreign country and you've got a bit of time off and you've got somebody like Les to yeah. around with, it can be a lot. Thank you so much for your time. It's uh, it's hugely appreciated. And it was such a pleasure reading Bunny Man, a memoir. Yep. Really look forward to reading the uh, the second book. Yeah, I'll keep it in the same vein. It'll still have the social yeah. history things and what was going on in the background. Yeah, I'll just try and keep it the same style, really. I'm not going to start becoming Rod Stewart or anything. <laughs> You know, rock and roll excess yeah and like i hate all that stuff it was like that's what punk kicked out all that crap and been trying to avoid that rock and roll lifestyle all all my life you know and like people thinking you're some sort of rock star it's no such thing it's a load of rubbish it's just nonsense like you're just providing a service for the mine it's not like it's downtime for people isn't it mm. music and cinema and all the rest of it like you're just providing another service it's just for your Brain health, really. Perfectly put. Thank you. Nice one. All right, then. Bye-bye. All right, see ya.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.